Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Broken Banquet, a podcast about missions. We are your hosts, Will Bailey and Dr. Ashley Goad, and we are so glad that you have joined us for another conversation about the church and missions, about what healthy mission relationships can look like, and as we hear from others who have dedicated their lives in one way or another to mission work. We're so glad you're here, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Broken Banquet Podcast. I am your host, Ashley Goad, and today we have a special guest co-host, Dr. John Woodward. Hello, Ashley. How are you? So great. John, I'm so glad that you're back on the podcast with us. Well, I appreciate the invitation, and the the person we're interviewing is one of my favorite people, so it's a delight to be on with you. Me too. He's one of my favorite people too. By popular demand, we have as a guest today, Will Bailey. (laughs) This is so weird. Will, our listeners have been wanting to know more and more about you, and it's about time you tell us your whole story. All righty. You are on the hot seat today. We're going to do like we do with all of our guests and find out more about your story, hear about your mission theology, how you've been abiding with your community, how you're seeking to make the, the the broken banquet table whole again. And then at the end, we have a rapid fire 10 questions. All right. Uh, well, if that's, if that's all, uh, you know, if there's anything else you would like to talk about, I'm sure we could fit a little bit more in there, but uh, let's give it a shot. So let me share with you the first time I met Will, uh, which is pretty exciting because we were in Israel in February of 2020. It was the first time I got to meet Will, met his wife about a year or two earlier, and probably one of the most amazing women you'll ever meet. And it's like, I agree. I've got to meet this guy who captured the heart of Yolanda. (laughs) And so when I met Will, I think the first thing we connected on was that both of us had read before the Israel trip, a book called The Biography of Jerusalem. Yes. And... Uh, to meet someone who had read a big, thick book like that and enjoyed <laughs> it was delightful. But his take on it was my take on it as well. And we both of us uh, walked away from reading that book going, the history of Jerusalem is terrible. I mean, the bloody, you know, every 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, there was battles. It was destroyed and they moved back in and built again, destroyed, built again. And it was just an awful, awful history. And you kind of get really depressed reading and, and wondering how people survive that. And so Will and I had the same take on it. But I was really fascinated by this guy who was leading a trip to Israel. He was doing work in Costa Rica, loved reading history, and just has a wide perspective on what's going on in the world. So I really appreciate having gotten to know you and just really see that you have a real concern for What's going on all around the world? Actually, I think we're done. I think we can just, we're done. Thanks, John. I appreciate you helping us out today. And thanks for being on the Broken Banquet. Um, Thank you, John. That's very kind of you. 
and I, I kind of feel weird now after you've described that book, I feel kind of weird saying that it's one of my favorite books because it's <laughs> not a, it's not a happy book. And, and I even hesitate to call it a book. It's, it's like, it's a tome. I mean, it's like 800 pages or something, but it's, oh my gosh, it's just fascinating. So I too was happy to, to connect with someone who had not only read it, but enjoyed it like I had. And then to walk the, you know, the streets of that place having some idea of how deep and crazy that history is. It, you know, the first time I went to the Holy Land, Jerusalem was my least favorite part of the trip. Hmm. And I read that book between my first and second trip. And for my second trip, which was the one that, that you two were both on, it was the highlight. Being back in that place, having a better idea of that place, it just changed everything. It's unfortunate that it's not a book everyone is going to take the time to read. I haven't. Yeah. And I, I know a lot of people who have gotten about halfway through the first chapter and said, nope, this is not for me. So, but yeah. And I, I, um, I can totally relate to how baffled you are that I was able to trick Yolanda into committing to spending the rest of her life with me. I still don't know how that happened. <laughs> I do. Y'all are great together. And when Isabella came into the picture, you just became even better. Well, uh, you know, I just visited another church this weekend in the States that the question I get asked most about my life in ministry is, why didn't you bring Yolanda and Isabella with you? Yeah. So, so I'm curious, Will, how did you develop kind of this uh, larger view and interest in the world? Um, I mean, very few people I know are really interested in larger questions and what's going on beyond their small world. Where did you get that from? It was just dumb luck. Um, I mean, I guess it started really on my first mission trip when I was 15 years old and came to Costa Rica with a youth group. And I will confess that I came for all the wrong reasons. Um, my worldview at that point was you know, skateboarding and MTV. This was in the eighties when MTV actually played music videos. And that was it. Like that was all I cared about. That was all I knew about. And so to be brought here to a developing country where they speak a different language, where like, you know, my first impression, I'll describe my first impressions of Costa Rica through the eyes of a very immature 15 year old. Uh, this place is a mess. Uh, these people drive like crazy. What is this tangled like spider web of of wires and cables that are connecting everything um you know what's wrong here that's kind of what i saw and um thank goodness as i've grown up and matured you know obviously my my perspective on how i interpret those kinds of situations has changed quite a bit but you know it wasn't i didn't come on that first trip because i was so interested in you know worldliness but it definitely something clicked and it made a huge impression on me. And so, I, you know, I came back every chance I got and, and I still, I can't say as a, as a teenager and, and even as a college student that I was processing what I was seeing, I think in a way that translated to sort of this global interest in different cultures. That's, it just sort of happened. I think, uh, incrementally over the years through different experiences that I had. I got to go to South Africa for a summer 
during after my first year of seminary, and it completely blew my mind uh, to be on the other side of the planet and to realize um, just how far removed that whole world was from my whole world. I had that experience again reading a book called Destiny uh, Disrupted. It's the history of the world through uh, Muslim eyes and realizing that, my goodness, this, you know, half of the planet developed historically and culturally and linguistically and politically independent from everything that was happening in the West until they finally sort of clashed at a particular moment in history. But up until that point, we basically were on different planets. And so it's just having little experiences like that over and over again that just make that stuff more and more interesting to me. Uh, I've been fortunate to uh, go with mission groups to Cambodia on two occasions. That was my first experience with Southeast Asia and that culture and that history. And and in all of these different places and in this, the, the different exposures that I've had to those things, it's almost always been within the church context. So that element of seeing how people live as Christians, how people worship as Christians, how people are, are present in their communities all of these communities that are so different from my community, uh, I just, I, I love that stuff. Yeah, it's been a pretty selfish endeavor, but if it has provided fruits that have been good for people around me and have been a part of the development of this ministry and the work that we're doing now in Costa Rica, then that's that's great. So there is a lot of value in travel and getting young people out into the world to see a different part of the world. There, there is for me, for sure. I remember reading an essay in seminary called The World in a Wafer by William Cavanaugh. And one of the things he talks about is how modernity, because of travel, has sort of collapsed the world to the extent that, you know, we can be on the other side of the planet in a matter of hours. And what does that mean for us as individuals? But what does it mean for us as a church? What does it mean on a sacramental level for us to be connected in that way? So I'm very thankful that modernity allows for us to be as mobile as we are. Mm -hmm. I know there's, of course, there's disadvantages and, and things like that. I wasn't real happy about it, you know, for the last 48 hours on this last trip I went on because I had the worst itinerary of any trip you could possibly imagine <laughs> and was sort of swearing to myself I would never travel again after, after this one. But now that I've gotten home and gotten a good night's sleep, I'm already looking at the calendar to see when do I get to travel again. I told Ashley... I've realized one of the things I like about traveling so much is when I'm here, when I'm in Costa Rica in my little corner of the world, it's very easy for me to just put my head down, get to work. I'm in this sort of bubble that is our community, and it's easy to just get absorbed by that. And then when I have a trip and I land at whatever big international airport I'm in and see all of those planes lined up and all of those people coming and going. And it just reminds me of what a big, what a big world we're a part of. Of course, usually after about 10 minutes of that, I'm like, all right, that's enough of that. Can I go home now? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess maybe I'm a little bit of a travel addict and mm. I'm thankful that I see you, Ashley. <laughs> um, you know, a part of what I get to do in my life and ministry is I get to travel and get to experience church in different places and with different people. And, and I just, I love it. I think that's an understatement, Will. I, yeah. You, you live into your calling well. Which, speaking <laughs> of calling, 
I want to just step back just a little bit. So for everybody who does not know you, who's listening to the podcast, do you want to give a five minute or less overview of how you got to where you are? Sure. Uh, I grew up in a church in North Carolina that has been committed to a partnership with the Methodist Church of Costa Rica for 35 years. So like I said a minute ago, when I was 15, I got to come here for the very first time. They taught me from a very young age what it means to have a long-term commitment to missions and to a specific place, what it means to have a relationship to a specific community long-term. And so I just grew up in it. I grew up in it in the church, and I thought I'll grow up and get a normal job, and for at least one week out of the year, I will go to Costa Rica on a mission trip with my church. And didn't even realize that what we do was a thing because our church in our particular situation, we weren't working through a missionary or a missionary organization. We were just in direct contact with the Methodist Church of Costa Rica. And so it wasn't until years later when I was almost done with seminary and uh, living in Costa Rica with a pastor and his family for the summer that uh, I was invited by the bishop of the Methodist Church of Costa Rica to come here when I finished seminary and to work with them uh, sort of as a bridge between churches in the United States and local churches here in Costa Rica that were seeking out partnerships. Uh, we also thought I was going to be teaching in the Methodist seminary here, and I only did that for one semester, and we had so much going on with with the teams that were wanting to come down here that the church here recognized I needed to be devoting as much time as possible to that. And so uh, they've done just fine without me in the seminary. I moved here in May of 2003, so almost 20 years ago. Yolanda and I, my wife, uh, and I had met during that summer that I was here, and we knew almost immediately, literally, that we were going to get married. And so a couple of months after I moved here, we got married, and we had our first volunteer team about a month after that, and started building up this ministry, uh, drawing from a lot of the mission experiences that I had had growing up, the experience I had had leading teams, uh, planning teams. I learned a lot of lessons and saw a lot of things that I was uncomfortable with. And so we were, I'm so thankful that we kind of got to do this from the ground up. I wasn't hired for a job that already existed where there was certain expectations and kind of standards and that sort of stuff that I had to fit into. We got to just create this the way that we felt like it should be and put into practice things that we felt like would be better than some of the things that I had experienced growing up or had heard from other people that they had experienced in, in missions growing up. So we're very thankful that we had that freedom and that the Methodist Church here was patient with us as we were also learning what that would look like and, and of course, relying on input from them about, you know, hey, what it should look like, <laughs> which is pretty important. Yeah, that's, I mean, in a kind of a nutshell, that's how I got here. What is the biggest lesson that God has taught you in 20 years in that ministry context? There's a bunch. There's a reason why I asked that it is because at some point on one of yours and my mini trips together, uh, you had talked about from that first calling and invitation that you had from the bishop there in Costa Rica and the idea of what 
your calling, your position would be there in Costa Rica. So now fast forward 20 years later and your ministry is almost completely different than what you thought it was going to be 20 years ago. So what, and as you describe what that difference is, um, what has God taught you as you've moved through that? Well, all of the cliches that you can think of, I have experienced them. You know, so the easy answer is, well, God's plans are just so much better than my plans. Um, that's the easy answer. But it's true. You know, I thought I was moving here to build stuff. And um, we were excited about that. You know, there were churches that needed classrooms and there were churches that needed worship space and there were churches that needed parsonages. And so we were going to come and, and partner with them so that we could get that done. Um and here we are with a daycare center and a counseling program and a home for students. You know, none of that stuff was on my radar. And so I always laugh when people ask me, so what do you think, you know, where do you see yourself in five years or where do you see yourself in 10 years? I have no idea because if you had asked me that five or 10 years ago, I would not have said the things we're doing right now. So my sort of standard answer when I get asked that question is, uh, I hope we'll just be faithful. Whatever it is that we're doing, I hope that we are being faithful to God's plans for this ministry. And I expect it will be completely different from what I expect it to be. And I've just learned to just trust in that. And we are surrounded by people who get that and who give us the freedom to be patient. And we've never rushed anything in the life of this ministry. We've taken our time. And there's been times that growth has happened maybe more slowly than we would have liked, but it has really helped us to avoid spending too much time going in the wrong direction. And so, yeah, that's definitely one answer to that question. Another thing I've learned is just that God can do really good things with really flawed people. I, there's sort of, I think, a tendency sometimes to look at people in ministry, to look at missionaries as, as some sort of kind of self-sacrificing heroes. And I mean, I'm just as messed up as everybody else, but for some reason, God has seen fit to put me in this place in charge of this thing. And like I said, surrounded us with wonderful people who have helped us along. And so I'm, I'm thankful for that. You know, I'm thankful for stories in the Bible about incredibly flawed people who, for whatever reason, God saw fit to use for good things. That's a, that's a big lesson too. And it, you have to be humbled a time or two or 50 to, to sort of get that, that I need to be thankful every single day. Uh, and I need to be as patient also with the people around me as clearly God has been with me, right? You mentioned that uh, the church you attended uh, had a partnership already in Costa Rica. And it sounded like they had made trips already to Costa Rica and continued after your first trip. What is the value of having those kind of regular involvement of a church in your work? And what does a partnership really look like? And what is the value of partnership in the work you're doing? Um, for us, it's it, partnership is is fundamental because it, you can do the same work that a lot of the people who come to, to spend time with us in Costa Rica do, 
without it being part of a long-term commitment, right? You can, you can still come and do the exact same things in the course of a week, but it's not going to be the same thing if you're doing it in a complete absence of relationship. So it's the same bus ride from the airport three and a half hours over the mountains to San Isidro. But when a team that's never been before and is never going to come back, when they get off the bus, you know, it's a pretty place. They're excited about the week. That's fine. The people who have been coming down here year after year after year, when they see Ugo and they see Fanny and they see Yolanda and they're back at the Missions and Ministry Center that they helped us build, that moment is completely different for them than it is for the ones who this is just sort of a one-off thing. And it's because of the relationships. It's because it's family. And so just that element changes the way everything else that happens during that week is going to feel. And it brings us into real relationship, what Ashley calls faithful friendship. That's what we, that's the element that is missing if there's not sort of a long-term consistent commitment. So when I talk to, to the groups that are here about communion and what communion means and how it binds us to one another and how we sit at the same table, for someone who's been here year after year after year or has had me come into their church in the States year after year after year, or maybe has even hosted mission teams from Costa Rica at their church in the States, when they come to the altar to take communion, they can feel the fact that they are sitting at the same table as their Costa Rican brothers and sisters that they have built relationships with. So that, I mean, that I can't emphasize enough how important, you know, it's sort of I don't want to trivialize, trivialize it by saying that's the missing ingredient, but I mean, it really is. It's, it's a really important ingredient that it's just not there. And so you can still do the same stuff, but it's not going to feel the same without that. So that's just on a sort of personal level of what I think it means to the people who are the individuals that are involved in this ministry. On a larger scale, uh, for us as a ministry to be able to project out into the community, the the larger community in Costa Rica, and to be able to commit to the different ways that we feel like we're being called to walk alongside local churches here and, and the church at large. Because we have partnerships with churches all over the country in the United States who are just as committed to this ministry as I am, it makes that so much easier because I know they get it. They get us and and they love what we're doing. And so when there's something new that we're exploring and I can say to them, "Hey, what would you guys think if we if we started doing some work in this area?" for them to say, "Yeah, count on us." Well, I mean, that's priceless. But if I just write a random letter to a random church that there's no connection to us at all, I'd have to be a heck of a letter writer to get much positive response to something like that. So you know, for me as the the administrator, that's a huge benefit to having long term relationships with people because it 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 means that we're not doing this by ourselves. We've got a network of partners 
that are committed to this ministry and what it means in Costa Rica. This totally begs the question of, will you have a huge network of churches that have bought into Acts 1-8 missions, that have bought into Costa Rica mission projects? Um, I think there's about a million people who come down and work with you every year. At least they <laughs> it, did before COVID. <laughs> it feels like it sometimes, yeah. <laughs> but how did that happen? How did it happen and how do you possibly maintain those relationships? And I asked that question because of something uh, that Nate Hutchison said uh, when we were talking about uh, my church's relationship with him is he was very honest in saying, I don't know if I could handle more than one of these types of church relationships with me and my family, because it is so much and it is so wonderful, but it, it's a lot to maintain too. So how is it that you maintain these relationships and that people all over the United States and beyond just love you so much? Have I already said dumb luck? <laughs> um, how did it happen it, well it didn't happen all at once you know if we had started like, if day two had you know in 2003 had looked like what today looks like I would have lost my mind but we grew into it slowly and, and gradually and and learned just the logistical part of it I mean we do we have a lot of volunteers that come we had 45 teams on our calendar for 2020 and we're slowly you know last this year we had 12 come next year we're going to have about 25 and we may get back to those kinds of numbers again so that's hundreds of volunteers a year that are coming through this ministry and you know getting to experience church with their brothers and sisters here but we didn't start that way and so because we grew into that gradually you just you just kind of you get used to it you know, I'm a cyclist and uh, I've got a hundred mile ride coming up in a few months. So my preparation for that ride isn't for me to go ride a hundred miles tomorrow. I'll start with 10 and then I'll do 15 and then I'll do 20 and then I'll do 25. And by February, I'll be ready to do a hundred. Well, that's kind of what, what the growth of this ministry was like. Thank goodness. Otherwise I may have clocked out and found something else to do by now. As far as the the relationship part, I think that too has has grown gradually. You know, we didn't even at the beginning we didn't understand how important the personal relationship part was going to be. I was so focused on just learning how to manage all of this and how to manage multiple construction sites and how to you know manage the logistics of having teams here and having them all fed and all that kind of stuff that I wasn't spending a whole lot of time thinking about you know my mission's theology and what you know I felt like communion meant to me and hopefully to the people that were coming I was just trying to keep everybody busy and engaged and alive so this what we're talking about now is something that I've I've started to see the value in more and more and more as you know as time goes by if there was ever any doubt in my mind about how important those relationships would be, um, the last two and a half years have cleared that up because there's no way that this ministry would have survived the pandemic, not just survived it, but, but thrived during the pandemic if it hadn't been for the fact that we had invested the time and energy in those relationships that we have, not just us, but on both sides, that the churches had also invested their time and energy 
in us. And so I had a totally unnecessary panic attack in April of 2020 thinking, this is it. We're done. This is over. I remember. Yeah. I remember. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, but it was completely unwarranted because the feedback we started getting from every single one of our partners was, we're going to do everything possible so that you can keep working, mm -hmm. regardless of whether or not we can come down there and be a part of it. I mean, that, you know, the, the very survival of this ministry, to some degree, came down to the fact that we had fortunately, over time, developed those kinds of relationships. Did I answer your questions? <laughs> I don't oh, remember. Yeah, you did. You did. And and I wanted to follow up, and I promise, John, I'll let you talk after this. My, my last question that before John can ask questions, what I appreciate about your ministry, Will, is that, yes, you have cultivated relationships with hundreds, millions of churches uh, here in the United <laughs> States. But what you've also done is that you've cultivated relationships in San Isidro, Costa Rica, and beyond. So mm -hmm. you not only have your core people of Costa Rica Mission Projects, Hugo and Fanny and Uguito and Pedro and Henry and th that group, you've now cultivated a group of daycare, your, your daycare workers and those families and the children that come. You not only have done that, but now you also have the Listening with Love counseling service, and all of this is because of the time you have spent in the community, abiding with them, living life with them, enjoying the fruits of that so that you know what it is they need because they tell you what they need and you're being able to be part of the community and minister to them in such personal ways that you're bringing that banquet table, making it whole again. So do you want to talk about what it's meant to be part of that community in uh, San Isidro? Yeah, I think one of the greatest gifts that I've ever received in my life has been being made a part of the church here. And the way that from the very beginning, first the leadership of the Methodist Church of Costa Rica, and then the way that it sort of trickled down to local leadership, and then to just normal church people, the way that they have made me a part of the community and a part of the, the church, I mean, it's hard to, to really to put into words. And so because of that, you know, I'll never not have been born in Eastern North Carolina. Right? There's, there's nothing I can do about that. Not that there's anything I want to do about that, but that's just the reality. I'm not from here. But I've lived in San Isidro longer than anywhere else I've ever lived in my life. And I feel like I've earned their trust. I think I did that as soon as I married Yolanda. That might have been the smartest ministerial move I ever made was, was marrying Yolanda um, because she grew up in the church here. And so she grew up going, you know, as a young person and as a youth, she grew up going to youth events and to camps with people who are now adults and leaders in the church. So they've known her their whole lives. And so as soon as... I tricked her into marrying me. There were a lot of people around us who were like, well, if he's good enough for her, I suppose <laughs> we can trust him. You know, this is just sort of anecdotal, but we, we struggled after we got married with the idea of whether or not we should build a house because, you know, we're missionaries. So is it, and I've heard different missionaries look at this in different ways and 
but the idea of owning land in a place when what I've said to God with my life is I'll go wherever you call me to go. So is it okay for us to buy a piece of land and build a house? And really the, the thing that helped us decide that it was the right thing to do was knowing symbolically how much it would mean to the community here to see that level of commitment from the two of us that we're not just going to be here until, you know, it gets tough and then we'll check out and go somewhere where it's going to be easier. We're here. And then I think that happened again with the missions and ministry center. When we bought this land and built this facility, I think that was a symbol for the community that we're putting down roots, like serious roots. You can't get rid of us now. You're stuck with us. So I think all of that has, has built trust I hope that just the way that I have lived my life among them and as a part of the community has also led to trust. I think if, you know, if I was just a jerk that was down here doing what I wanted the way I wanted to do it and how I thought was best, you know, there's, I don't know how much longevity there is in that, but I hope that the way that I've interacted with the people here has reinforced what it means for me to be a part of their community. So good. Um, going back to the partnerships, um, I just wanted to suggest that uh, when I went down with Ashley's team earlier this year, and I got to experience the partnership in action as I saw Ashley and her team being so thrilled to be back again with all the people you work with there in Costa Rica. And for me, watching them for them, it was like homecoming. They were getting to go back to be with their friends yeah. and their family down in Costa Rica. And so I, I see that their many trips down have developed that partnership that you had, had talked about. And the other thing, and this is a, a, the question, one of the things you did when we got down there was to sit us down and kind of give us an orientation that was more than just basics on how to live in Costa Rica, but it was really helping us get perspective. And one of the things I appreciate what you do is when teams do come down, you spend time with them and help them understand what being in Costa Rica and being a part of your ministry really is all about and what they should get out of it, as well as what they should put into it. And so can you briefly talk a little bit about your orientation that you do with each team that comes down? Because I think it's really insightful in what you do with the teams. Sure. And this is, this is something else that has developed over the years. But the more attention I paid to what we were doing and what was working and what wasn't working and what people were responding to and what people weren't responding to, I just felt like I have a responsibility to communicate that to be able to communicate what, what we're doing and why we're doing it to the volunteers that are coming, to the churches that are sending them, to the churches that, where they're going to be present for the week. I, I need to have that stuff sorted out as much as I can. You know, anybody can fill out a calendar. Anybody can go to the hardware store and buy materials. But I feel like the biggest, most important part of my job is sort of teaching in that regard and helping people hopefully imagine maybe in a different way what this is about. Let's just be honest. Short-term missions is a bit of a punching bag, 
Uh, and there is a lot of room for criticism that is well-deserved. And so a, a big part of what I want to do is help people think about it in a, a, a healthy way for the volunteers, for the local churches, for the communities, and cut off from the very beginning some of the unhealthy expectations or motivations or, or whatever people might have come with. And so that's why that's what we do at the very beginning. Most Sunday mornings when we're at church and the local pastor is getting ready to preach an hour-long sermon in Spanish, I'll pull the team out and we'll go have Sunday school together in English. And that's when I talk about these five things that make a church a church. I was thinking about this the other day. This isn't included in what I usually talk about on Sunday mornings, but maybe it will be at some point. I was thinking about how we are used to a a culture, North American culture, where our actions give meaning to our relationships, right? The way that the things that we do, either explicitly or implicitly, give meaning to our relationships. So in the mission context, when someone says, what are we going to do on the mission trip? Well, they've already implied what they think that relationship means. It means I'm going to do something. It means I have something that they don't have. It means I have resources, I have knowledge, I have skills, whatever. I've got it. They need it. So we've already sort of set ourselves up for relationships of dependency for disempowering the people in the community that we're going into and all that kind of stuff, just because of the way we've asked that question and the way that our actions inform what our relationships mean. But if we can get people to flip that around and look at it backwards and say, what if our relationships are what give meaning to what we're doing. If our relationships are based on everyone being invited to the table as equals, with no preference, no privilege, then in turn, those relationships, what Ashley calls faithful friendship, they're not about rich and poor. They're not about us and them. We wind up doing some of the same work that we were going to do anyway but it means something completely different because it's the relationship that's determining what the work means instead of the work determining what the relationship means. I think talking about that kind of stuff at the beginning of the week, I hope it just sort of sets the tone for the week and what our expectations are for the group that's here, what their expectations um, should be uh, uh, for themselves and for us and the people they're going to be around. I always say every week, I do not think that I have sort of figured it out and that everyone that's doing mission work around the world needs to understand it the way that I do and do it the way that we do. This is who I believe God has called us to be in this place and how he has allowed us to understand what that means for us. And if there are things in that that are helpful for other missionaries or other organizations or for churches, then praise God for that. But it doesn't mean that like I've cornered the market on what everybody needs to to understand about missions. So this has lots of applications, I think, 
well beyond the mission field. Absolutely. Uh, it better. Yeah. Yeah. That we can take home because I think that's probably an issue and within the local church as well, that we're always asking, what can we do? And we're not so interested as just being present in the lives of people. And, and that's something that I also say every week when I, you know, when I'm wrapping it up, I'll say, now there is nothing that I've just talked about for the last hour that is specific to Costa Rica. This is hopefully how we will approach local missions. This is hopefully how we will approach, you know, normal life and church life. And it's very refreshing too, for a person like me who is terrified of construction work to be on a mission <laughs> that's going to work for a whole week doing construction work and knowing that maybe my presence is going to provide something of value rather than my construction work. Yeah. We're human beings, not human doings. And we just focus so much on doing stuff all the time that we don't leave any space and we undervalue. I think that just culturally we undervalue just being it. It looks lazy, you know, it looks like you're unmotivated, you're not a go-getter. All the things that are valued in our Western culture fly in the face of just being and taking the time to see the people around us. So I hope, you know, I think if, if everything that we were doing was sort of obvious and made sense and was like what people had already thought and heard their whole lives, I don't think as many people would fall in love with what we're doing. I think it's because we're offering sort of an alternative um, and a different way to think about it that's challenging and might be uncomfortable. But I think that's what makes it valuable. I'm sure there are just as many people that have gone home moved by a mission trip with us. Have There have also been that many people who have gone home and just been like, oh, well, that was that. <laughs> that was a thing. But if, the, if at least some people are changing the way they think about missions and reimagining what the word church means for them, then, then that's a win and we're going to keep doing what we're doing. What's the challenge, Will? Um, well, obviously, most recently, the biggest challenge has been keeping the wheels turning and sort of reminding people that, that we're here and we're ready to get back to work. And thankfully, people are responding to that and are, are ready to come back. Of course, it's a challenge to try and lead something in the direction that you hope God wants it to go. You know, that's not a simple task. And so we, you know, like I said earlier, we rely on the people around us to help us navigate that. It's challenging being lumped into a category that I feel like we don't really belong in. It's really frustrating that there's just this giant basket called short-term missions that a whole bunch of things get lumped into together and criticized equally. And like I said before, some of that criticism is warranted, but there's a lot of what people have problems with in regards to short-term missions that's not us. That's really frustrating. And I feel like I'm sort of shouting into the wind sometimes because a lot of people have just already made up their minds that short-term missions is bad. It's harmful for everybody. Run away. You say, well, wait, hang on a minute. Can we, can we talk about this for a second? Because actually, 
there are things about this that are good for everybody. But it's really easy to just say, nope, I read, I won't name the book, but I read that book and I'm not going to go and our church shouldn't go. You know, that's easy. But if you're willing to put in the work, there are ways that, that we can engage with our brothers and sisters around the world and create faithful friendships that are good and healthy and sacramental. And I think a way of repairing some of the brokenness. How can we ever repair what's broken about the banquet if we're not willing to engage with people around us locally and not locally? Um, Otherwise, what we're going to wind up with is just a really small table of a bunch of people who look and think and act just like we do. That's not the table. So, I think we should do a whole podcast on that topic. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, let's get through this one first. Okay. <laughs> Did anything about your mission theology change when you had Isabella? Because I have told people that Will Bailey pre-Isabella and Will Bailey post-Isabella, a little bit different. I have a question for you, Ashley. How has Will Bailey changed pre-Isabella compared to post-Isabella? Pre-Isabella, I just knew the guy who did Costa Rica Mission Projects and was running teams and had a hurt back because he was doing a lot of construction work and had hurt himself and was in a lot of a uh, still go, 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 really stressed about teams and trying to just get through the building of the project. There were a lot of things that happened sort of at the same time. Um, after 10 years of, of this really being a, a project focused ministry and wanting, you know, putting as a priority, making sure that the local churches here have the, the infrastructure that they need so that they can grow and, and reach out into the communities the way they feel like they're being called to, which all of that translates to, Lots and lots of construction work. After 10 years of that, we made the decision to buy property and build the Missions and Ministry Center. Yolanda and I also decided that we were ready to start a family together. And so my role in the two most important parts of my life started to shift. I wasn't just a missionary that was coordinating construction projects. I was the director of a ministry that was getting ready to open a daycare center that was getting ready to start housing students that was you know really like i said before putting down roots in a specific community so that meant i didn't have time to do construction work myself anymore which probably is a good thing since you're right my back during that period of time was pretty wrecked at the same time now i'm not just one part of a missionary couple, now I'm you know, pretty soon going to be a dad. And so you know, I started spending way more time in an office than I was spending on a work site. And I needed, it was time for me to make that kind of change. Also, the ministry had grown to the point where there was so much administrative work to do that I couldn't be out on a construction site or off in a community all week long with a group of volunteers. And then 
and then get done all of the other things that I also needed to get done. So it was sort of this perfect storm of things that all happened during the same like year or two that just really shifted what my role as the director of this ministry looked like. Um, as far as Isabella specifically, I think I'm definitely more aware of you can't you can't get anything over on an eight year old. You know, <laughs> she sees everything and doesn't understand like agendas and things like that. Things are just they are what they are. And so, you know, here's another cliche, but I mean, she keeps me honest. And there are things that I am more aware of in my interaction with people and like just the way that I see people and how that translates into how I interact with them that I'm more aware of because I know that they're the eyes of an eight-year-old are on me. And if I'm saying one thing and doing another, she's not having it. And it's only going to get better as she gets to be a teenager. Oh my gosh. (sighs) (laughs) My blood pressure just spiked. Well, it should be said that Isabella is one of the sweetest, loveliest little girls that you'll ever meet. And I'm so thrilled to have spent time with her. And I know everyone who has a chance to get to meet Isabella is just blessed. So you've got a wonderful daughter. Thank you. Well, as we come to the close of this Broken Banquet podcast, I would like to once again thank John Woodward for joining us today and being a guest host. And man, our our guest was just wonderful today. Just really. Oh, knocked it out of the park, didn't he? Oh, man. So good. I want to end on, I've got 10 questions, Will. I've got 10 questions. All right. We're going to go quickly. Are these like yes or no answers or one word answers or eh, they're are, short. There, are there rules? They're, Do we have rules? They're short answers. Don't go off on okay. a big story. Just like first things that come to your mind. Some of them are very objective, you know, like they have an answer. All right. Okay. Question one. You seem to love Olive Garden. What is your favorite order at Olive Garden? <laughs> Salad, garlic bread, chicken parmesan. With spaghetti. What is your longest bike ride? 100 miles, 160 kilometers. What are the next three countries on your bucket list? Oh, geez. See, I have a hard time with that because I just go where people invite me. <laughs> that's, my, <laughs> that's my bucket list is wherever someone wants to take me, I'll go. Uh, I would love to go back to Cambodia again and see the the friends that I made there. I would I would love to go back to South Africa you know, it's been 22 years since I was there and I've stayed in touch with the the guy that I lived with while I was there. He's a pastor now and has a beautiful family and I uh, would love to have a chance to go and, and spend some more time with him. And beyond that, uh, gosh, you know, wherever someone <laughs> sends me a ticket, I'll go. That's on my bucket list. All right. Number four, what languages do you speak even a little? Even a little? Well, English sometimes. Um, I speak Spanish mostly these days. Uh, I, I learned some Khmer before my second trip to Cambodia um, and could do okay, but it's gone now because it's been several, uh, five or six years since I was there. And there aren't a whole lot of people for me to practice Khmer with in Costa Rica. 
Uh, I'm currently learning Arabic, and I think I'm probably at about a first grade level right now after two years of classes. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. I may have a different answer after my next trip to the Holy Land when I actually try and use it. That may be the, the end of that project, but I'm really enjoying it. And then, you know, I can say I see you in Zulu. So Sawabona. Sawabona. All right. Number five, what is your favorite coffee? Mine, the coffee I grow. <laughs> that's an easy answer. Come on. That's everybody's favorite coffee is my coffee. It is true. They just don't all know it yet. It is true. I love your coffee. All right. Number six, when did you, when did you learn to play guitar? We were working in Changana. There's not much to do in Changana. So I got a guitar and spent my, my idle time in the afternoons uh, and that was probably 10 years ago. What's your status on United Airlines? <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, because I've done an awful lot of traveling in the last 12 months to visit churches that we had zero you know, physical contact with for two and a half years, I am at uh, premier platinum status Whoa. and keeping my fingers crossed that I'll be able to maintain that for next year. <laughs> I want to be like Will. Said nobody ever. <laughs> I do. I do. All right. Number eight, what three books shaped your mission theology? The Bible. Good one. <laughs> Good one. So the first piece of literature that really shaped my mission theology, it wasn't a book, but it was the essay I mentioned earlier by William Cavanaugh, The World in a Wafer, uh, really solidified how I understand what communion does to us which is fundamental to everything that we do as a ministry. Gosh, there's so many, man. I mean, I just finished the, the one that I just finished reading was, it was just really good. I'm not sure. I guess it's, we'll have to wait and see how it, how it affects my kind of my mission theology, but this book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, Removing Cultural Blinders to Better Understand the Bible. It's just, oh man, it was just great. Yeah, this one's, gosh, it's been out a while, but David Platt's Radical. I mean, I probably read that 10 years ago, and it just, there's some really good stuff in there. Are you a fan or a it. follower? I hope I'm a follower. I guess, you know, I'll know one day. I expected you to say ministering cross-culturally. You know, that's a good one, and it's one that I recommend to teams to read. Mostly, that was just sort of, it reinforced a lot of what, you know, the kind of the conversations that I'd already had in, in my head and wasn't sure whether or not I was on to something, that book, I enjoyed it because of that. And, and I've recommended it to a lot of people. It's, it's a very accessible book about good, sort of a good approach to missions. Yeah. All right. Number nine, you have a banquet table. There are eight seats. You're at the head of the table. Who are the other seven people? Oh my gosh. Jesus. Of course. You might want to say Yolanda. See, I'm going to I'm going to push back on this question a little bit, Ashley, because that to me sounds like a pretty exclusive table and I think that's antithetical to how I imagine the table. I would rather give you a list of the eight people I hope not to see at that okay. table. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to do that either, but that would be a much easier list for me to come up with. Uh, I want to be the bouncer at that meal that says to some people, nope. Out of it. Um, nope. Sorry. No, I mean, gosh, I'd have to, I'd have to really put some thought into that, but 
Sorry. All right. What's number 10? Number 10 is what do you wish we had asked you? You guys just, you covered everything. You did such a good job. Um, Stop it. (laughs) You asked me what the biggest challenge was, which is the question we always forget to ask people. You didn't ask me what I think people in churches in the United States can learn from Costa Rican. What could churches in the United States learn from our brothers and sisters in Costa Rica? Funny you should ask that, Ashley. Um, You know, a lot of times after teams have gone to church here on Sunday morning, it's their their very first worship experience in Costa Rica, and I'll, I'll ask them, if you had to describe that service in one word, what would it be? And of course, a lot of times it's like, it was hot or it was really loud. Often the answer is it was a celebration. Mm -hmm. If it's a surprise to people that Sunday morning can feel like a celebration, what is that? What are we saying? But it should be a celebration. We should be gathering together to celebrate Jesus and salvation and you know all of those things and so i love that that's what church like that's what the, that's what it feels like we're doing on a sunday morning is we're celebrating it's a party and we're celebrating and so maybe that's something that that there's some room for growth there in some churches in the united states is that that our time together in worship would be celebratory because we certainly have a lot to celebrate. Will, John, this has been fantastic. Hey guys, have me back anytime. Uh, I I love what you're doing. This is a great idea. I'm so excited that you all are doing this podcast and I'd love to be a part of it again down the road if if it's ever necessary. You can count on it. With your wisdom, Will, we'll definitely have you back. (laughs) Hey, wait a minute. That's right. The Ashley and John show is over. (laughs) (laughs) well guys hope you have a great day thanks You've been listening to The Broken Banquet, a podcast by Will Bailey and Ashley Goad. Music provided by Irene and the Sleepers. Join us next week for another episode. He's prepared the table. All things are ready. Come to the feast. <laughs>